want to um, just want to say welcome to those of you who would be listening to us through our podcast. And I especially want to say hi to a group of guys at the Henderson County Detention Center Life Change Program who will be listening to this uh, by our podcast. Really enjoyed meeting you guys this past week. Thank you for letting me uh, be a part of that. Thanks for letting me come and meet you guys. For those of you who are new to City Church, we're in the third week of a series that we have been calling City Church at the Movies. And we've been analyzing four movies that were nominated for Best Picture at this past year's Oscars. And we've been looking for places in these movies where art intersects the gospel. And so far, we've looked at Dallas Buyers Club and 12 Years a Slave. Next week, we'll be looking at the movie Nebraska. Uh, but this, this morning, we're, I've chosen a movie that I think is perfect for Mother's Day, and it's the movie Philomena. How many people have, you, how many people have seen the movie Philomena? Okay. Before I get into that, I thought that you would be interested in hearing something. Um, a movie producer learned about this series through uh, a friend of his, and uh, he listened to the first two installments of this particular series. And I'm not going to tell you the name of the movie producer, and I'm not going to tell you the name of his friend because I want to protect this man's anonymity. But I just want to read to you a little part of, of what he said in response to hearing those first two uh, installments. He said, What a wonderful way to engage your current members and to do outreach to the new. It's so important for positive moral values to be incorporated into the popular culture that people use every day. If more people in our era had been raised with this kind of thinking and teaching, there would be less media garbage and more good guys and gals in the media, arts, and entertainment business. And then he said, thanks for sharing this website with me. I'll visit it on a continuing basis. And what I wanted you to hear in that, I, I think that's really cool that, that, that that's happened. And, and what I want you to hear in that, though, is the impact that we as a church can have on the culture by engaging and embracing the arts rather than distancing ourselves from the arts. Perhaps we only have ourselves to blame, at least to some extent. We have ourselves to blame for much of the garbage that we complain about in the arts, because we as a church, not not just our church, but we as the church, failed to recognize the importance of the arts in spiritual development, and as a result, we excluded creativity and creative people uh, from the church. And I recognize that what we're doing in this series, for some of you, it's it's a stretch. You guys have responded tremendously to this series, and I want to thank you for that. But what we're doing in this series is that we're taking some necessary risks to signal that we recognize the importance of the arts and the value of creativity to spiritual development. And I don't know about you, but I would prefer to be part of a risk-taking church in the name of the gospel than a church that plays it safe all the time out of fear. And to that end... uh, We want to look at the intersection today of the movie Philomena and the Gospel. So watch this trailer. This is Martin Sixsmith, used to be the BBC's man in Moscow. And Washington. You're depressed. Well, I got the sack. I'm unemployed. Yes, but it wasn't your fault, was it? That's why I'm depressed. What are you working on at the moment? I know this woman. She had a baby when she was a teenager. She's kept it secret for 50 years. You're talking about the human interest story, and that's... I don't do those. Why not? You think I should do a human interest story? 
Philomena, how are you? I had a hip replacement last year, Martin. Titanium, so it won't rust. Otherwise, I'd have to oil you like the Tin Man. Is that right? Oh, no. He's just joking, Mum. Oh. <laughs> I was going to ask if it would be possible not to use my real name when you write the story. What about Anne Boleyn? That's a lovely letter. Well, somebody had no, that. We're going to have to use your real name, Philomena. I only want to know if he's all right. Perhaps these older nuns would help us with some of the details. I don't think that's going to be possible. Why not? You're a journalist. I used to be. Martin's a Roman Catholic. Yes, well, no, I used to be. My guess is that Anthony was adopted and sent to America. I think I would like to go. I'd like to know if Anthony ever thought of me. I've thought of him every day. Should we go for a walk? Or we could watch Big Mama's house. It's about a little black man pretending to be a fat black lady. It looked hilarious, Martin. She told four people today that they were one in a million. What are the chances of that? Oh. What if he died in Vietnam? Or lived on the street? Or what if he was obese? What math makes you think he'd be obese? Because of the size of the portions. That's my Anthony. I met him. Where? At the White House. Oh, God. What was he like? And did you remember anything he said? Hello. 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 It might have been high. <laughs> I did not abandon my child. He was taken from me. She's been looking for him. She spent her whole life trying to find him. I've never been to Mexico, but I believe it's lovely. Apart from the kidnappings. We really have, we're really in love with that clip today. We, we're going to show that as many times as we can. Um, so I have to tell you that in spite of the socio-political comparisons that the movie wants to draw between racism and any objection to homosexuality, uh, I, you know, and I, I didn't agree with all of that, but I still absolutely loved this movie. One Christian reviewer said that this is the best faith film that you will see all year. Philomena is the true story about an elderly Irish woman named Philomena Lee, played brilliantly by Judy Dench, who in the early 2000s went on a search to find her son, Anthony, whom she had born out of wedlock. Her family was so ashamed of her pregnancy, they forced her into a Catholic or- or- uh, orphanage run by nuns to have the baby. At the age of two, the nuns forcibly took the baby, the boy, Anthony, from Philomena, and they sold him to an American couple who took him back to the United States. And when we first meet Philomena in the movie, she's neither seen nor heard in the 50 years since from Anthony, though she says that she has thought of him every single day. She longs to know, as any mother would, what became of him and if he ever thought of her. Philomena's unlikely ally in this movie, which is what makes this movie so fun, is a man by the name of Martin, an actor by the name of Martin Sixsmith, who is played by, uh, excuse me, the, the, the character is Martin Sixsmith, and the, uh, the actor is a man by the name of Steve Coogan. Sixsmith is a former BBC reporter turned government official who was caught up in the wake of a scandal, not of his making. He's very clear to make that point throughout the movie. Unjustly disgraced, Sixsmith returned to reporting and and book writing, and when at a dinner party, he 
meets Philomena. She just happens to land on his radar. What makes the movie, as I said, so much fun is that Six Smith and Philomena are polar opposites. He, on the one hand, is cynical, and she, on the other hand, is trusting, uh, perhaps too much so. He's very educated and very sophisticated, and she is very simple and humble. Perhaps you would even say Pollyanna-like. But where they're most opposite in, is in matters of faith. He is agnostic, leaning toward atheist. She's a devout Catholic. She lives with guilt that she ever signed permission for her child to be adopted. He sees injustice in what happened. And their opposing views on faith and the church color their differences on how they are going to move forward in this search for her son. And what I want to do... Uh, in the next few moments, the same thing that we've done throughout the rest of the series, I want to share with you four points, four places at which I saw an intersection between this movie and the arts, or excuse me, and the gospel. And here's the, I, I could, by the way, I could share many more than four, but I just don't have time to do it. Um, let me give you the first one, okay? And then we'll, we'll start from there, and then we'll keep rolling at that point. Let me, here's the first one. How often we overlook God moments in our lives. How often we overlook God moments in our lives. Now, I have to tell you, there are six ironic moments, by my count at least, in this movie in which Martin, who is this cynical agnostic, where he has something happen that can only be described as a God moment. Four of these moments are so subtle, you probably didn't even notice them when you watched the movie. And I debated about whether to tell you what those six moments are. And I decided that it would better underscore my point not to tell you what those moments are. But I will tell you what I will, here's what I will do, okay? If, if you've already seen the movie, I would encourage you to go back and watch it again. If you haven't seen the movie, this would be a cool day, Mother's Day, to watch it with your mom. I mean, so go watch it for the first time if you haven't seen it. And see if you can identify these moments in, throughout the movie. And, and this week, what I will do is, instead of giving it to you in the, the talk here this morning, I, I'll put out a, you know, we have this thing that we call a think blog that we send out every week. Okay, I will list those moments in that think blog. So you can read them for yourself there. I'll give you the answers to this question about, you know, what are these six ironic moments in the movie? Does that sound acceptable? Okay. Sound acceptable? There's a few of you that are saying no. And I, I just, I want you to know this, that while we live in a democracy, this is not a democracy. So I'm going to do it this way, okay? And we'll put it out on the Think Blog and you can check. But go see the movie again. If you've seen it, seen it once, you know, rent it, watch it at home. And, and if you haven't seen it, go see it on Mother's Day with your mom. It'd be really cool to do that. Okay. What's cool, though, about these moments is that the movie is not heavy-handed with them. So, as I said, they're so subtle that you wouldn't even notice them. They don't, you know, there's nothing in the movie that shouts, oh, this is a God moment. It doesn't happen. Martin doesn't even seem to recognize them as God moments. But the movie uses this genius little device to tell us that we ought to be paying attention to these moments. And if you've seen the movie, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about here. Much to Martin's chagrin... Philomena loves telling him about these serial romance novels that she likes to read. 
You guys are laughing because you know. In the, two, in the two scenes that she does that, she ends the retelling of the story. And they're pretty lengthy retellings, by the way. She ends the retelling of the story by saying, I never saw that coming, Martin. And that is the movie's way of saying, pay attention to these moments in this movie that you never saw coming. They're significant. They're important. Pay attention to those. And I have to tell you that I actually didn't catch these moments uh, myself until the second time through the movie. That's how subtle they were. And, And here's what happened. It got me to thinking, how often do I miss the God moments in my own life because they're so subtle? You know, those moments when God breaks through in the mundane and the routine and the humdrum moments of my life. And maybe I never noticed them because, oh, on the one hand, it could be that I wasn't spiritually alert enough to notice them. On the other hand, it could be that I'm always looking. I I think most of us are like this. I'm always looking for, like, big miracles. I mean, something huge. And I think we all do that because we want to see Big signs as proof of either God's existence or some of us just want to see proofs of that so that we can see a proof of God's love for us. But the Bible itself, interestingly enough, says that we make too much of the effectiveness of those big miracles. Does that surprise you? John, uh, the gospel writer John, he says, he says in John chapter 12, verse 37, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. And these were big signs, big miracles, like turning water into wine, changing the molecular structure of water into wine, walking on water, raising Lazarus from the dead, and they still didn't believe in Jesus. And I think it's, I think often, and I even think it's fair to say usually, God seems to prefer to work behind the scenes, in the dark, obscurely, as if he's saying, look, there are plenty of signs of my work in your life if you're spiritually alert enough to see them. One of my favorite books in the Bible um, is the book of Esther. I just, I love that book. And what makes that book so fascinating is that it's the only book in the Bible in which God's name is never mentioned. And yet, God is all over the narrative of the book of Esther. I mean, he's all over it. Now here's, I want to give you, can I give you a little more homework? I gave you one assignment, and that is to go see the movie. If you haven't seen it, I'm going to give you a little more homework, okay? And what I, what I want to do, here's the, here's the assignment. I, I want to give you a way that you can start seeing the God moments in your life that maybe they're so subtle that you haven't paid attention to them. I can promise you that every one of you in here, there are significant God moments in your life, but you didn't pay attention to them. And I want to, I want to tell you how you can learn what those God moments are. Ask yourself... Think think about it in terms of like looking back over your life. Ask yourself, when were the moments in my life that something good happened to me that I didn't see coming? When are the moments in my life that something good happened to me that I didn't see coming? Which is what Philomena kept saying to Martin, right? I didn't see that coming, Martin. A phone call out of nowhere that led you to a job that led you to a career. 
a word of encouragement that you got from someone that you would have never expected to get a word of encouragement from, and that got you through a very dark time in your life. A friend that you met in a place that you would never have expected to meet a friend. Something good that came out of a very difficult time of suffering in your life. Those, see, those are God moments in your life. And I'll bet you that they're all over the story of your life if you look back. But you probably didn't notice them because you weren't thinking about it. You were looking for a big sign. Or maybe you weren't spiritually alert enough, but I promise you they're there. And they're all signs. They're all signs of God's incredible love for you. So do that. That's your homework uh, for tonight. All right. Here's the second place that I saw this movie intersect with the gospel. And I've said this one to you before. I know I've used this phrase before. I'm going to use it again today because I think it's a great phrase. And I will probably use it a hundred more times. It's this. Some people are so, quote, good that they're bad. Some people are so good that they're bad. Now, I mean, just warn you here, spoiler alert, okay? Spoiler alert. But, listen, the movie's been out since last fall, so if you snoozed, you lose, all right? There's one particular nun in the orphanage that the movie focuses on at the very beginning of the movie and then at the end of the movie again, okay? And her name is Sister Hildegard. Doesn't that sound horrible? Sister Hildegard. Uh, she is very mean, Sister Hildegard. She commandeers the sale of Philomena's son. And we learn that over the years, she has lied to keep Philomena from ever discovering anything about her son. And, here's the real spoiler alert, we learn that Anthony died in 1995. And before his death, he went searching for his mom. And this nun kept Anthony from finding anything out about his mom. In a very powerful scene, I'll I'll describe it a little bit now and a little more later on, but in a very powerful scene, Martin Sixsmith, the journalist, confronts Sister Hildegard. And he asks her, why did you keep them apart? Why did you do this? That's not very Christian, is it? And Sister Hildegard, uh, she's had enough of the questioning. And she explodes with this bilious response. She says, let me tell you something. I have kept my vow of chastity my whole life. Self-denial and mortification of the flesh. That's what brings us closer to God. Those girls have nobody to blame but themselves and their own carnal incontinence. When religion goes bad, this is how it often looks. Sister Hildegard is so proud of her goodness and her virtue and her virginity that it drives her to be condemning of Philomena and the other girls who bore children at the orphanage. Instead of making her more merciful, religion has made her mean. She's one of those people that's so good, she's bad. In fact, she's evil. And oh, have I seen this in the context of the local church. It's a very problem that Jesus 
confronted with the Pharisees. They were, they were offended that Jesus would hang out with sinners, people like Philomena, and so they confronted Jesus about it. And one of my favorite lines in all of the gospel, Jesus says to these guys who consider themselves to be incredibly scholarly and learned men about the Bible, he says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, he says, you go and learn. Oh, I love that. Saying, saying to people who are extremely educated and sophisticated, go and learn. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, he says. I would venture to say that there are two major reasons that people reject Christianity. One of them, we'll talk about it another day, but that, it would be anti-intellectualism. We'll save that and talk about that another day. I, I think, though, anti-intellectualism is one of the reasons that many people reject Christianity. The second is that there are people in the local church who are so good, they're bad. And they have perverted Christianity into a self-righteous meanness. Someone, a friend of mine, texted me uh, what he had learned after watching the movie Philomena. And he, and he, said, he said this, and he's ex- exactly right. He said, what I learned is that self-righteousness keeps us from being merciful to people. I love that. He's exactly right. I mentioned at the beginning of this talk that I spent some time in a jail cell this week with about a dozen guys who are behind bars and who want to follow Jesus. And they asked me... You know, we probably, a guy in our church, uh, by, the name, by, uh, by the way, his name is Joe Bartelheim. Joe heads this ministry up, and uh, he invited me to come and speak to these guys. And I was really glad to get a chance to do so. And we probably talked for about an hour and a half. And near the end of our time together, they asked me, how do you choose a church? When we get out of here, how do you choose a good church? And I kind of responded and gave them, you know, a couple of answers. But listen to this. A couple of the guys said to me, They said, I'd be ashamed to walk into a church because I've been in jail. And I'm terribly sorry if it feels like that I, to you that I beat this message into the ground. But how in the world did the local church ever so screw up the narrative of the gospel that people who failed think that the local church is not a place for them to go. How in the world do we do that? Think about it, folks. Hospitals haven't screwed up their narrative. Nobody says, if I'm, if I'm sick or injured, I'd be ashamed to go to the hospital. Nobody says that. Clothing stores haven't screwed up their narrative. Nobody says, if I need clothes, I'd be ashamed to go to a clothing store. Restaurants haven't screwed up their narrative. Nobody says, if I'm hungry, I'd be ashamed to go to a restaurant to eat. But somehow the local church that worships a Savior who died for our sins and whose primary symbol is the cross, somehow we have found a way to so screw up our narrative that people who have failed think that they wouldn't fit in the local church. How in the world have we done that? Here's how we've done it. So glad I asked that question. <laughs> this is my third point. We've neglected the idea that doctrine matters. And you see that all over this movie. Doctrine matters. There's a significant trend in churches today to not teach doctrine to not discuss theology because people think it's boring. And I I would concede that doctrine taught for doctrine's sake can be boring, and it might be of interest to only a small group of people. But doctrine taught the way the Bible teaches doctrine in the details of human everyday life, let me tell you something, that 
is the most important thing that you ever need to learn in your life. And yes, you heard me correctly. It is more important than mathematics. It is more important than science. Those are important things to learn. It is more important than grammar. It is more important than spelling. It is more important than anything else that you can learn. Doctrine. We have this saying around here that good psychology is good theology, or you could say doctrine, made personal. Good psychology is good theology made personal. And this movie powerfully illustrates that point. All of the problems in this movie, all of the problems that people, the characters in this movie experience, flow out of bad doctrine. Every one of them. Now, I only read to you a portion a moment ago of Sister Hildegard's response uh, to Martin when he challenged her. I'm going to read to you the whole thing. She said, let me tell you something. I've kept my vow of chastity my whole life, self-denial and mortification of the flesh. That's what brings us closer to God. Those girls have nobody to blame but themselves and their own carnal incontinence. What's done is done. What do you expect us to do about it now? Stop. Don't, Don't move that slide forward. What do you expect us to do about it now? And Martin says to her, he says, say you're sorry. Apologize. Confess. To which Sister Hildegard responds like this. Their suffering was atonement for their sins. The Lord Jesus Christ would be my judge. None else. Now wait a minute. Leave that up there. I want you to focus on that. Watch this. Wait just a moment. Their suffering? Their suffering was the atonement for their sins? No, that's bad. That's horrible theology. It's why Philomena lives with guilt throughout this whole movie and shame. It's why Philomena's family was so ashamed of her that they abandoned her at an orphanage. It's why Martin in this movie rejected the church. It's what drove nuns to sell babies. It's why Hildegard, Sister Hildegard, is so self-righteous and mean. It's why you live with fear. It's why the gospel is on decline in America. It's why the broken are afraid to come to church. Their suffering is not the atonement for their sins. Jesus' suffering is the atonement for their sins, for my sins, for your sins, and for the sins of all of humanity. Not my suffering, not their suffering, not your suffering, but Jesus' suffering. That's what it's about. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once. For all, bad doctrine, bad theology, it will screw you up, man. And it will destroy lives. And it will create fear and anxiety and shame. And it will drive people away from Christ. And it can ultimately result in a Christless eternity. Doctrine matters. Getting the gospel of Jesus Christ right is the single most important thing in life. Understanding the character of God, who he is and how he works in the world is the single most important thing in life. A.W. Tozer once said that if you can, he, 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 says if you, he says how a man understands who God is will dictate how he lives the rest of his life. And he's right. Doctrine matters. 
And don't ever forget that. And we as a church will not shy away from or apologize for teaching doctrine. Finally, and boy, there's so much more I'd like to say. I am so on a roll this morning with stuff I'd like to say, but i got to stop here because I know even though I'm on a roll, you're not on the same roll with me right now. Um, Man, this one is so uh, powerful. Um, The power of forgiveness. This whole last scene that I've been describing for you where Martin confronts Sister Hildegard, Hildegard is so powerful. Voices are raised. People are shouting at one another. The nuns and the priest are outraged that Martin would confront Sister Hildegard. And Sister Hildegard is outraged. And people are talking fast and loud and angry. And suddenly Philomena steps in and she tells Martin, enough. And Martin says to her, are you just going to stand there and do nothing? Philomena says, no, I'm not going to do nothing. And then she turns. And this mother, who has suffered 50 years, and has suffered even more intensely of late, now that she learned that her son had been looking for her before his death, and this self-righteous prig of a nun kept her from him. And she says this very thing that no one could have seen coming. Sister Hildegard, I want you to know I forgive you. And I want to tell you that, it, like, it, when I watched this movie, each time I watched it, I, I mean, it, it took my breath away. That, it was like that. It just took, because you don't expect it. It comes such a shock. You don't expect that kind of action. And she says, Sister Hildegard, I want you to know I forgive you. Martin is stunned. We as an audience, as we watch it, we're stunned. Because this is the last thing we saw coming. And Martin says to her, he said, What? Just like that? She says, no, not just like that. That's hard for me. But I don't want to hate people. I don't want to be like you. Look at you. Martin replies. He says, I'm angry. And she says, which she says, it must be exhausting. Martin walks out. And he looks back at the nun and he says, well, I couldn't forgive you. And for the first time in the movie, you just get the sense that Martin really gets it right. He couldn't have forgiven her because forgiveness is a supernatural act. And if if a person doesn't believe in Christ crucified for their sins, they never have a reason to forgive. They never have the power to forgive. The power for forgiveness is the Holy Spirit. It's supernatural. The power for forgiveness is the Holy Spirit. But the power of forgiveness is the power to unchain the forgiver from the sin that hurt them. It's the freedom from bondage of anger and shame and guilt. And let me tell you something, when forgiveness is extended, people see a God moment that they can't miss 
And they can't deny. And those of you who've seen that movie, you can testify to this. That when, you, when that happened, when she said, I forgive you, you didn't miss that. Some of us here this morning need to forgive someone. Because of something that they did to hurt you. And you need to forgive them through the cross of Christ. Actually, for some of you, it may be yourself that you need to forgive through the cross of Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you need to forgive someone who sexually abused you. Maybe some of you have someone in your life like Sister Hildegard who never asked for forgiveness, doesn't believe that she did anything wrong. You might have someone like that in your life that you need to forgive. I saw someone tweet out recently this past week. They they said, it's so hard to forgive someone who doesn't think that they need forgiving. Maybe you need to forgive an ex who is unfaithful to you. Maybe you're a parent who needs to forgive a child. Maybe you're a child who needs to forgive a parent. It is time to bring all of that to the cross of Jesus Christ. It doesn't excuse them for what they did when you forgive. It's not as if you're saying what you did didn't matter, what you did didn't hurt me, what you did wasn't wrong. That's that's not what forgiveness is saying. Forgiveness is saying, I accept the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross for your sins and for my sins. And I'll leave your sins at the cross. You can forgive someone in your world that you need to forgive, perhaps yourself. You can do it this morning in the privacy of your seat. Or, you know what, even though we don't have a cross here, um, you might want to come down and kneel at the front and forgive someone privately, you know, in your own prayer. Dana and the band, they're going to come back up in just a moment and and you could take a few minutes to come and kneel down and forgive someone if you'd like to. Or maybe, maybe this morning, maybe you need to receive forgiveness. I tell you, Philomena, she reminded me, in in a way, she, she reminded me of Jesus in this movie. She went searching for her lost son, like any mother would. And and you know what? We make an appropriately big deal of the fatherhood of God, but we neglect the motherhood of God. That's good doctrine, by the way. We neglect the motherhood of God. And you see the motherhood of God. You see the the mother's heart of God in Jesus, who would leave his 99 sheep and go in search of one lost sheep. Jesus is searching for someone here this morning. And if you took time to carefully think of it, there are signs of his searching for you all over your life. He wants to bring you into the family of God. And I would just say to you that it's time to come home. It's time to come home. He's been thinking of you every day. 
And he's been thinking of you for all of eternity. It's time to come home. You can do that in the privacy of your seat as well. You might want to come and kneel down up here and respond for the first time to the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He loves you that much. And he was raised again so that you could have a whole new life. If you want to respond to that message today, it'd be a good day to do that. It might be the best gift that you could ever give your mom or moms. It might be the best gift that you could ever give your kids. And then, as I said, there are others of you, maybe you just need to forgive someone. And you can do that in the privacy of your seat or you can kneel down here. I need to forgive some people.